0: Hi, my name is Isla Watson, and I am your True Crime Consultant, ready to talk to you about true crime. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome back to a new episode of True Crime Consultant. My name is Isla, and I want to thank you for being here today with me as we continue discussing the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. I hope that you enjoyed last week's episode, and if you have not yet listened, please do that before listening to this episode. Last week, we discussed the disappearance of Natalie Holloway, and this week, we will continue doing that. Now, before I continue, I will give you a brief recap of the timeline of Natalie's disappearance, just to make sure that we're all on the same page in terms of what happened. So, the timeline of Natalie's disappearance is as follows. On May 24th, 2005, Natalie graduates high school. On May 26th, 2005, Natalie and 124 her fellow graduates arrive on Aruba. They are there for a senior graduation trip. The next three days are filled with visits to the beach, visits to the clubs, and lots of drinking and partying, and just an overall very good time. May 29th, 2005 is the last day and night for them to party before going home to Alabama. And then on the early hours of May 30th, 2005, Natalie is last seen by her classmates, leaving the Carlos and Charlie's nightclub in a silver Honda at around 1:30 a.m. She is not alone. She is seen leaving this club in the car with three guys. Dutch student Joran van der Sloot, who was 17 at the time, and his two friends, the brothers Kalpo. And these brothers are Deepak Kalpo, who was 21 at the time and the owner of the car, and Satish Kalpo, who was 18 at the time. Now apparently Natalie had met Jordan at the casino next to her hotel earlier that night and they had hit it off. On May 30th, the next day, well a couple of hours later I guess, Natalie's classmates were ready to leave the hotel with their bags packed. They were ready to go to the airport and catch their flight back home to Alabama. Natalie however did not show up. Police found her passport in her Holiday Inn hotel room, along with their packed bags. There was no sign of Natalie in the room or in the hotel, and a search for Natalie began almost immediately. So this is what happened, and other than this, there is not much more that we know, to be honest. This does not come as a surprise to you, especially if you did listen (laughs) to episode two last week, but Joran van der Sloot and Deepak and Satish Kalpo were the main suspects from the beginning, as Natalie was last seen with them and what we also heard last week is that there were a lot of potential suspects that had been detained, arrested, but then released in connection to Natalie's disappearance. In every case, for every arrest that was made, there was never any real physical evidence whatsoever, which meant that whoever was arrested had to be released. Natalie's body or remains have never been found, Till this day, we do not know where she is. We do not know what happened to her. And it seems as though without Natalie's body or any evidence of a crime, it is a difficult task to get someone sentenced in connection to Natalie's disappearance. I mean, it's even a difficult task to really know what happened to Natalie to begin with. Now, you might be wondering at this point, as I was, why has no one ever been convicted of any crime in relation to Natalie's disappearance? Is it only because your body has never been found? Well, at first I thought that might be the case. You see, throughout history, it has always been difficult to arrest and convict someone for murder without a body. However, it is not impossible because it has been done before. So it is possible to convict someone of murder without the alleged victim's body in evidence. However, historically, cases of this type have been difficult to prove, often forcing the prosecution to rely on circumstantial evidence. And in England, there was for centuries a mistaken view that a suspect could not be tried for murder without a body. Thankfully, recent advancements in forensic science, that are slowly becoming less recent, have increased the likelihood that a murder conviction can be obtained even in cases where no body has been discovered. And just to refresh our brains, circumstantial evidence is evidence of facts that the court can draw conclusions from. For example, if a robbery happened down the high street at quarter past six, and you give evidence that you saw the accused person walking down the high street at about 6 p.m., in that situation, you are giving the court circumstantial evidence because the court can draw the conclusion that the accused person was close enough to where the crime was committed that they actually did commit the crime. Now, in 1959, Robert Leonard Ewing Scott was convicted in California for the murder of his wife, Evelyn. The case was one of the first to establish a bodiless murder. That is, a murder in which no body has been discovered to prove that a crime has actually been committed. Although Evelyn's body was never found... Her dentures, eyeglasses, and some of her personal items were found among buried ashes near the incinerator on the couple's estate. First of all, why do they have an incinerator on their estate? I do not have the answer for you, but I might look into this a little further for a bonus episode some other time. In any case, this case was groundbreaking as it was the first case in US history of someone being convicted of murder purely on circumstantial evidence without the victim's body having been located. So this is a good example where there is a lack of physical and direct forensic evidence, but enough circumstantial evidence to conclude that a crime had been committed. However, in Natalie's case, there is not even enough circumstantial evidence to get a conviction. All we have is that Natalie was last seen with Joran van der Sloot and the Kalpo brothers. There is no more physical or circumstantial evidence, and this leads us to a dead end. But there is still more for us to discuss. In my opinion, the biggest indicator that something bad happened to Natalie, other than the fact that she disappeared and was never found, is the behavior of Joran van der Sloot since she disappeared. He has never been able to keep his story straight. He seems to keep lying and since then, he has committed a number of extremely serious crimes. And this is what we will get into today. To begin with the various confessions Joron has given. So, since the first time Joron spoke to the police and Natalie's parents, he has told many different versions regarding what happened the night Natalie disappeared to begin with the first version of offense he ever gave. So after denying he knew who Natalie was, which I guess we could count as the first lie, Yoram told them that he and the Kalpo brothers drove Natalie to the California lighthouse area of Arashi Beach because she wanted to see sharks. They later dropped Natalie off at her hotel at around 2 a.m. Now according to Yoram, Natalie fell down as she left the car, but she refused his help. Apparently, as Yoran was telling this story, Depa Kalpo at some points would enter into the conversation and would take over telling parts of the story as though Yoran was not giving the correct version of events. Yoran then stated that as he and the Kalpos were driving away, Natalie was approached by a dark man in a black shirt similar to those worn by security guards. As I continued doing research, I found that in an interview, Beth Holloway stated that Joran had told them that she was actually approached by two security guards. Then we have a new version of events, or actually two new versions of events. Between June 9th and June 26th, 2005, Joran and the Kalpo brothers, who had been detained, changed their stories on multiple occasions. Now. All three initially indicated that Joran and Natalie were dropped off at the Marriott beach near the fishermen's huts. And according to Satish Kalpo's attorney, in support of this story, they said that Joran had called Deepak Kalpo to tell him that he was walking home and he then sent him a text message 40 minutes later telling him that he had come home. Now, Joran stated that he did not harm Natalie but that he did leave her on the beach by herself. So this story is obviously not what they initially told Natalie's parents and the police. But I'm not sure if the police ever looked into this or not because it seems like something fairly simple that they could have, you know, confirmed or not by looking at the text history or something like that. But in any case, At some time during another interrogation, Joran detailed a third version, that he was dropped off at home and that Natalie was driven off by the Kalpo brothers. So here we have two different versions. Now the police quickly dismissed this version of events as they believed that Joran felt as though the Kalpo brothers were kind of pointing the finger towards him and putting all the responsibility on him. So then he changed his story to make it seem as though Natalie was alone with the Cal po brothers and not alone with him. So here we already are at three different versions within the first two, three weeks since Natalie has been missing. Then in the months following his release, Joran von der Sloet gave several interviews that explained his version of events. The most notable interview was shown on Fox News over three different nights in March 2006. During this interview, Yoran indicated that Natalie wanted to have sex with him, but he did not because he did not have a condom. He stated that Natalie wanted them to stay on the beach, but that he had to go to school the next morning. According to Joran, he was picked up by Satish Kalpo at about 3am and that he left Natalie sitting on the beach by herself. Joran von der Sloat stated that he was somewhat ashamed to have left a young woman alone on the beach, albeit by her own request, and related that he was not truthful at first because he was convinced that Natalie would soon turn up. Now, this version of events was quickly dismissed. As previously, in August 2005, so the year before, the Kalpo brothers' attorney had stated that his client had gone to sleep and had not returned to drive Joran von der Sloot home. So this contradicted Joran's version of events. So also, this fourth version of events, as told by Joran von der Sloot, seems to be another lie. But there is more. On January 31st, 2008, The late Dutch crime reporter Peter R. de Vries claimed that he had solved the Natalie Holloway case. Peter de Vries stated that he would tell all on a special television program on Dutch television on February 3rd. But on February 1st, the Dutch media reported that Joran van der Sloot had made a confession regarding Natalie Holloway's disappearance. Later that day, Joran stated that he was telling the individual what he wanted to hear and denied any involvement in her disappearance. That same day, the Aruba prosecutor's office announced the reopening of the case. So what exactly happened during this broadcast? What was aired on television? The episode or the broadcast was aired on February 3rd, 2008, and it included excerpts from footage recorded from hidden cameras and microphones in the vehicle of a man named Patrick von der Aim a Dutch businessman and ex-convict who had gained Joran van der Sloot's trust over several months. Van der Sloot was seen smoking weed and stated that he was with Natalie when she began convulsively shaking, then became unresponsive. Joran stated that he attempted to revive her, but without success. He said that he called a friend who told Joran to go home and that the friend had then disposed of Natalie's body. However, the individual who was said to be Joran's friend that he was talking about, he denied Joran's version of events and said that at the time he was actually in Rotterdam in the Netherlands in school. He was not even on Aruba, so he could not have been the one to help Joran. I'm just hinting at something that I will discuss a little later on, but I think it was not his friend, but his father who helped Joran. I think Joran called his father, but we will get back to this. Now, in response to what Joran said on these tapes, the prosecutor in Aruba wanted to arrest Joran, but this was denied. The court held that the statements on the tapes were inconsistent with evidence in the case, and were insufficient to hold Joran. On February 8th, Joran van der Sloot met with Aruban investigators in the Netherlands and denied that what he said on the tapes was true, stating that he was under the influence of marijuana at the time. Joran van der Sloot indicates that he still maintains that he left Natalie behind on the beach. Now I'm not sure about the effects of marijuana being able to cause Joran to lie as he says it did. I don't think marijuana makes you lie, but I don't think we can say that it makes you tell the truth either. I think that Diana Cruz explained the effects of marijuana quite nicely in a post on Quora. She says that weed or marijuana can have varying side effects on people. Someone with a high tolerance might smoke weed and feel as if they smoked a cigarette, meaning they will feel relaxed but still completely aware and functional. Some people with a lower tolerance or someone new into using cannabis can become spaced out. Some people can hallucinate, some people will become very open and talkative about everything and anything, while others like to isolate themselves while high and get stuck watching movies or researching stuff online and don't like to talk much with others. Other people like to work on hobbies and be alone, while others again like to be social and be talkative. All these things have nothing to do with someone being honest or dishonest. That comes down to the individual and who they are as a person. So I guess all that she's saying here is it depends on the personality, on the environment, on the circumstances, whether someone decides to open up or not, or whether someone decides to be truthful or not. Now, in my opinion, Joran was smoking weed and feeling relaxed and comfortable, and why would he not? He was with someone he trusted, he trusted this Patrick guy, and he felt safe and comfortable enough with him to just talk. I don't think saying that he was under the influence of marijuana is a good excuse. Because as far as we know, marijuana does not make anyone lie or talk shit. I really believe that he was comfortable and was speaking what might have been the truth. But this was not the final version of events if you thought that was the case. It is not. Because we have more lies, more versions as told by Joran van der Sloot. After this interview, on November 24th, 2008, Fox News aired another interview with Yoram in which he stated that he sold Natalie into sexual slavery. So he said that he had human trafficked her and he had received money both when Natalie was taken and later on to keep quiet. Yoram also said that his father paid off two police officers who had learned that Natalie was taken to Venezuela. He later retracted the statements made in this interview. Now, Fox News, also aired part of an audio recording provided by Joran van der Sloot which he said was a phone conversation between him and his father in which his father displays knowledge of his son's involvement in human trafficking however it is believed that this voice heard on the recording is not that of Paulus van der Sloot but of Joran van der Sloot himself so basically it's Joran van der Sloot trying to speak in a lower tone Now, I don't know why he would do this because, first of all, he is implicating himself again, saying that he human-trafficked Natalie, but he also brings his father into it and then he provides an audio clip of him talking about it and then pretending to have a conversation with his father, which is actually just himself. I I don't know why he would do this. I don't understand what the point of this is especially if he's going to retract it later on now i'm not sure if he was paid for doing these interviews because what i do know about Joran is that he had gambling problems, he loved going to casinos, he loved gambling in interviews he has stated that well he wasn't i believe it was bali he would just spend thousands of dollars a day gambling so he might have just been lying and and coming up with new sensational versions because he was getting paid for these interviews Because other than the fact that they were giving him money, I cannot understand why he would do something like this. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. It's very frustrating. And it also does not put him in a good position. Because again, he is going public. He's being broadcasted. People are talking about him again in relation to Natalie's disappearance. And not in a good way because he's literally saying that he human trafficked her. It makes no sense to me. But if you thought that that was the final version of events, you are again mistaken, because there actually is another story that Joran von der Sloot told. On February 23rd, 2010, it was reported that Joran von der Sloot had stated in another interview that he had disposed of Natalie's body in a marsh on Aruba. Now, The prosecutor in Aruba had indicated that authorities had investigated this latest story and had dismissed it. They said that the locations, the names, the times, everything that he gave made no sense at all. So essentially, these are all the different versions Joran von der Sloat has given regarding the night that Natalie Holloway went missing and he last saw her. Seven different versions. as far as Joran's lies and unbelievable behavior goes, it did not end there. On March 29th, 2010, Joran van der Sloot contacted John Kelly, Beth Holloway's legal representative, and remember Beth Holloway is Natalie's mother. Joran had contacted John Kelly, with an offer to reveal the location of Natalie Holloway's body and the circumstances surrounding her death if he were given $25,000 in advance and another 250000 after telling them. In response to this, John Kelly notified the FBI, which is super smart. It was very smart of him not to trust Joram. And then they arranged to proceed with the transaction, right? So, so John and Beth, they're working with the FBI, the FBI is telling them, let's do this, we will get something out of this. Whether it's the truth or not, something's gonna come out of this. On May 10th, Joran van der Sloot had $15,000 transferred to his account in the Netherlands, after which he received another $10,000 in cash, which was videotaped by undercover investigators in Aruba. After he gave them the information on the location of Natalie's remains as promised, Authorities stated that the information that he provided in return was false. The house in which he said Natalie's body was located had not yet been built at the time of her disappearance. On June 3rd, 2010, Joran von der Sloot was charged in the US District Court of Northern Alabama with extortion and wire fraud. An arrest warrant for Joran was obtained and transmitted to Interpol. On June 30th, Joran was indicted on the charges. Now. As if lying about what happened to Natalie for all those years publicly was not enough, Joran had to go to Natalie's mother directly and play this twisted game with her. I think somewhere, Beth Holloway must have felt that he was never going to tell her the truth, because why would he do that all of a sudden. But at the same time, she must have held on to some hope that after all these years and for the right price, he might finally give her the answer she so desperately wanted. Now, the only good thing to come from this is that Joran van der Sloot has an arrest warrant in the US and that he has been indicted on extortion and wire fraud charges. I wish I could end this story here and tell you that after all of this, nothing else happened. I wish I could tell you Joran van der Sloot has been quiet ever since and that he has lived a boring, innocent life since all this happened. But no, unfortunately, that is not the case. On May 30th, 2010, Exactly five years to the day that Natalie disappeared, Stephanie Flores Ramirez, a 21-year-old business student, was reported missing in Lima, Peru. She was found dead three days later in a hotel room registered in Joron Vargaslo's name. On June 3, 2010, Joron was arrested in Chile on a murder charge and extradited to Peru the next day. On June 7, Peruvian authorities said that Joron Vargaslo confessed to killing Stephanie Flores after he lost his temper because she accessed his laptop without his permission and found information linking him to Natalie Holloway's disappearance. Police Chief Cesar Guardia said that Joran Van der Sloot told Peruvian police officers that he knew where Natalie Holloway's body was and offered to help Aruban authorities find it. However, Guardia stated that the interrogation was limited to their own case in Peru, and that questions about Natalie Holloway's disappearance were avoided, which, fair enough, they focused on Stephanie Flores and and making sure that they got a conviction for her and justice for her, and I I can't blame them. On June 11th, 2010, Joran von der Sloot was charged in Lima Superior Court with first-degree murder and robbery because he had also stolen $10,000 that Stephanie had won in a casino prior to her murder. On June 15th, Aruban and Peruvian authorities announced an agreement To cooperate and allow investigators from Aruba to interview Yoron at Miguel Castro Castro prison in Peru. In a September 2010 interview from prison, Yoron reportedly admitted to the extortion plot. Remember earlier in 2010, he had basically tried to scam Natalie's parents into giving him a quarter of a million dollars, but he admitted to this reportedly. He stated, I wanted to get back at Natalie's family. Her parents have been making my life tough for five years. He is just a terrible human being. I mean, everything that comes out of his mouth is just... Ugh. On January 11th, 2012, Joron von der Sloot pled guilty to the murder of Stephanie Flores, and he was sentenced to 28 years in prison. Now, to add to this, Joron was recently sentenced to another 18 years for smuggling drugs. Apparently, he got a family member of a fellow inmate to smuggle cocaine into the prison on a very large scale. One way they were smuggled in was through sugar beets. He also got prison guards to then smuggle the cocaine outside of the prison. So Joron basically had quite a big drug smuggling business going on. Now the 18-year sentence will be added to his 28-year prison sentence for the murder of Stephanie Flores, which brings a total to 46 years. And after that, Peru has already stated that they will extradite him to the United States as he still faces extortion and wire fraud charges there. Now I want to take a quick moment to talk about Stephanie Flores. Stephanie Flores Ramirez was a 21-year-old business student at the University of Lima at the time of her death. She lived with her father and was an avid poker player. Stephanie was the only girl in the family and had four other brothers. Stephanie was described as the baby of the family and she was very close to her father and her brothers. She was a very friendly, respectful and intelligent girl, with hopes and dreams of her own. I hope that her family will be able to find some sort of peace in the fact that Joran has gone to jail for what he did to Stephanie. But that, of course, does not change the fact that she is gone. Rest in peace, Stephanie Flores Ramirez. Now, where Stephanie's family got some sense of justice, Natalie's family still has not. And Beth Holloway has never stopped looking for her daughter, the truth, and justice. But her efforts and methods have gotten her into trouble in the past and have resulted in people being quite critical of her. In televised interviews and in a book, Beth Holloway has stated that she believes that Joran van der Sloot and the Kalpo brothers knew more about Natalie's disappearance than they have told the authorities and that at least one of them sexually assaulted her daughter. On July 5, 2005, following the initial release of the Calpos, Beth stated, Two suspects were released yesterday who were involved in a violent crime against my daughter and referred to the Calpos as criminals. A demonstration involving about 200 Arubans took place that evening outside the Oranjestad courthouse. The protesters were angry over Beth's remarks, with signs reading, Innocent until proven guilty and Respect our Dutch laws or go home. Satish Kapo's attorney threatened legal action and described Beth's allegations as prejudicial, inflammatory, libelous, and totally outrageous. On July 8, 2005, Beth read a statement that said her remarks were fueled by despair and frustration and that she apologized to the Aruban people and to the Aruban authorities if I or my family offended you in any way. And I gotta say that at the time that Beth made these remarks, her daughter had been missing for about a month, maybe two, so of course she was feeling desperate and frustrated and heartbroken. Her daughter was gone and they were no closer to finding her and all she knew was that the people that Natalie was last seen with were being released from custody. I don't know how you feel about her statements, but I'm glad she was able to apologize and I hope that I will never have to feel what she was feeling at that time. Following the airing of the Peter Artifreeze program on Dutch television, Beth said that she believed that the tapes represented the actual events that transpired, and told the New York Post that she believed her daughter might still be alive if Joran von der Sloot had called for help. She also said that she believed that Joran von der Sloot had dumped Natalie's body, possibly alive, into the Caribbean Ocean, but also said that the person Joran supposedly called that evening was his father, Paulus, who according to Beth, orchestrated what to do next, and many people agree with Beth on this. There are numerous different theories out there on what happened to Natalie, and based on what I have seen online, you can divide it largely into two groups. The first is the group that believe that Jorunn Werner Slote is actually innocent, and that Natalie's death was an accident. In this situation, Natalie was extremely intoxicated and might have taken drugs. In any case, she either started throwing up or as Joran said in one of his versions, convulsively shaking. Joran panicked and may or may not have tried to help her, but in any case, Natalie died. The second group believe that Joran von der Sloot murdered Natalie in cold blood, as he did with Stephanie Flores. In this situation, they think that Natalie might have rejected him and that he lost control and murdered her. In both cases, however, what Joran did after Natalie died is the same. He called his father, Paulus, for help, and I definitely agree with Beth Holloway on this. I don't think Joran murdered Natalie. I tend to believe Joran's version of events that he told in the car while smoking weed. I think Natalie was very drunk and might have had alcohol poisoning. Maybe Joran had even given her drugs or something. Maybe Natalie started throwing up a lot. Maybe she choked. In any case, Joran might or might not have tried to help her. But what we do know is that he never tried calling for help. He never tried calling for an ambulance or anything like that. So he definitely is to blame for Natalie's death. Then, after Natalie died, Joran called his father in a panic. Paulus von slow to Joran's father, then told his son that he would take care of it. And I genuinely think that he got rid of Natalie's body in the ocean and that the sharks ate her. Because how is it possible that she was never found? Now, Paulus von der Sloot died on February 10th, 2010, and he took the truth with him to his grave. He also died before Joron had murdered Stephanie Flores, and I wonder if that might have changed things for Paulus. I wonder if he might have told the truth after Joron murdered Stephanie. Maybe he would finally realize that protecting Joron was not worth it. We will never know. In her 2007 book, Loving Natalie, A Mother's Testament of Hope and Faith, Beth wrote that what we want is we want justice and we have to recognize the fact that this crime has been committed on the island of aruba and we know the perpetrators we know it's these suspects deepak and satish kalpo and Joron van der sloot and we just have to keep going because the only way we will get justice for natalie is if we keep going if we give up absolutely nothing will happen nothing in response to her daughter's disappearance Beth Holloway founded the International Safe Travel Foundation, a nonprofit organization designed to inform and educate the public to help them travel more safely as they travel internationally. In May 2010, she announced that the Natalie Holloway Resource Center would open at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment. Located in Washington, D.C., the center opened on June 8, 2010, to support the families of missing people. So, I guess, if anything, good has come out of Natalie's disappearance, these two things are that. In June 2011, six years after Natalie's disappearance, Dave Holloway, Natalie's father, filed a petition with the Alabama courts to have his daughter declared legally dead. The papers were served on his ex-wife, Beth Holloway, who announced her intention to oppose the petition. A hearing was held on September 23, 2011, at which time probate judge Alan King ruled that Dave Holloway had met the requirements for a legal presumption of death. On January 12, 2012, a second hearing was held after which Judge King signed the order declaring Natalie Holloway to be dead. So that's that. That is all we know We know that Joran von der Sloot is a terrible person and he is in jail and he will be in jail for a very long time, but I don't care about Joran von der Sloot. I care about Natalie Holloway and I am very sad that we still don't know what happened to her. And I genuinely do believe that Joran knows what happened to her and, you know, whether he killed her or not, I just hope that one day he will finally decide to tell Beth Holloway what happened to her daughter. I think Beth deserves the truth. She has not been able to rest for a single day, I think, since her daughter disappeared. And of course, above all, Natalie deserves justice. This was a very difficult case to discuss. Like I said in episode one, when I first heard about Natalie Holloway, when she went missing, I was only eight years old. In the meantime, I've grown up. I've been 18 like Natalie was. I went on my own senior trip. I've been on a graduation trip when I, you know, finished university. I've done all these things that Natalie was supposed to do as well, but she never got a chance to do. And I recently saw, while I was doing research, I saw some footage, some home footage of Natalie and It really broke my heart because she was like a fun, goofy person. Just seeing that footage of Natalie laughing and having a good time. Just so innocent, so fun. It's heartbreaking. But yeah, that's actually the end of this episode. That's all we have. I hope one day I will be able to come back here and tell you that we know what happened to Natalie. Thank you so much again for being here with me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something from it. And I hope that you will, as I will, keep Natalie in your thoughts. Keep Beth in your thoughts, I guess. Join me in hoping that one day we will learn what happened to Natalie. Also, we cannot forget about Stephanie Flores, who was mentioned in this case as well. Stephanie, at the time that she died, was a university student and the fact that Joran was just able to be the end for two young women who had their entire lives ahead of them, who were smart, intelligent, kind, respectful, who were loved by so many people who had so much to offer this world, it's its incredibly infuriating, it's incredibly frustrating. It makes me so angry. And I am very happy that he will be in prison for a very long time. If you thought today's case was interesting, please spread the word true crime consultant you can find me on instagram and tiktok at true crime consultant please spread the word please follow me on instagram please also share your thoughts with me if you have any ideas your own theories on what happened to natalie um whatever you want to share your thoughts on please do reach out to me because i would really love it you know the whole reason why i started this true crime journey is because i want to talk to people about these cases and i want to hear thoughts and I am sharing my thoughts right now, but I would love it if you also shared your thoughts with me. So reach out to me on Instagram, follow me at True Consultant. Let's keep in touch and I will see you guys next week for a brand new episode. Until then, stay safe, enjoy your week, do mental health checks, check on your friends, text your mom, text your grandmother. And see you next week. Natalie was a beautiful girl, involved in the church, always had a smile on her face, always so happy and energetic and, and outgoing. They called her Hootie. <laughs> There's Hootie. <laughs> so, Hootie Who Holloway. Who's our special guest yeah. today? It's Hootie. Hootie Who Holloway. Hi, friend. Just, you know, sitting in the back, cruising over to my place. Hi, my name is Isla Watson, and I am your true crime consultant, ready to talk to you about true crime.